Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hate to come in here on a Monday and say, I told you so. I'm not that guy. Yes, I am. I told you so. I told you the Rams were not dropping five bill on a brand new house and taking that big swing from Matthew Stafford and another big swing for Von Miller and bringing in Odell just to have somebody else come into their $5 billion house and win their Super Bowl. They did not go to all that trouble, all that expense, and push pretty much everything they had to the center of the table just to get there. They had already done that. They did what they did to win the whole damn thing. And then they went out and they did it. The damn thing. Whose house? Rams house. Whose Super Bowl? Rams Super Bowl. Because this is Los Angeles. The city of champions. You can hate on this city and its fans all you want. Because frankly, that's what a hell of a lot of you do. Not all of you. But a lot of you. A lot of you are here to hate. It's who you are. It's what you do. You'd rather hate on us than win with your own. Think about what I just said. It is true for some of you. You would rather hate on us than win with your own. Look in the mirror and own that. For instance, how many of you hate L.A.? I can answer that. Pretty much all of you. How many of you hate L.A.? And why do you hate L.A.? Because you're jealous. We've got the best weather, we have the best food, and we are just stacking chips, stacking titles. Don't hate what you can't duplicate. Don't hate what you can't replicate. Oh, here's an idea. Here's a really novel concept. How about this? Just don't hate. Just don't hate. The simplest way to sum up last night's game, though, is that old cliche. Big-time players making big-time plays in big-time moments. Last night was about the stars and star power. And I've always said this about this town. It's a town built on star star power. It's a star-driven town. And the Rams have built themselves around star power. They didn't nickel and dime their way to this Lombardi. They didn't fluke it. They didn't fake it. They didn't gimmick it up. They were not gimmicky little bitches. No, they loaded up. They loaded up on stars. Then they won it all. Odell Beckham with the first TD. There's a line drive throw near side. Leaping two-handed, falling down, catch in the end zone. Caught for the Ram touchdown. Odell Beckham Jr. near side of the end zone. Leaping high, bringing it down. Matthew Stafford has just thrown a 17-yard touchdown pass for the Rams who take an early lead in Super Bowl 56. You already know who those golden pipes belong to. Credit Westwood won. So you've got Odell off the top. Cooper Cup with the game winner. Stafford from under center. Steps back. Throws the fade. Back shoulder. Cooper Cup's got it. Cooper Cup brings it in. Touchdown. Touchdown. Touchdown, L.A. With 1.25 remaining, the Rams are back on the high side. Rams radio, Cooper Cup open again, as always. Death, taxes, and Cooper Cup being wide ass open. Cooper Cup's got it! Matthew Stafford with the drive of a lifetime and the man who won the game, Aaron Donald. 
Aaron Charles Donald, Super Bowl legend. I said it several times last week from Radio Row. I said it in my Rome minutes. I said it prior to the game itself yesterday from SoFi on one of my Instagram stories. I said, quote, 99 is not going to let them lose this game. And he didn't. No way in hell that was going to happen on that GOAT's watch. Not in his house. Not with the Lombardi on the line. This guy does not lose in that situation. Not after already having one slip away. He flat out imposed his will on that game in the fourth quarter. I want to reiterate that. 99 was not going to let them lose. Not in his house. Not in that game. There was no way he was getting this close to a Super Bowl and letting it slip away. No chance. Just like there was absolutely no chance that Samaje Pirine was getting away from him on third down with the game on the line. Need the first down. It's a long one on the ground. Samaje Pirine didn't get there. Aaron Donald, rather important tackle with Greg Gaines. Wow. Oh, boy. Of course he didn't get there. The hell were the Bengals doing giving it to that guy in that situation? More on that in a moment. Because with the Super Bowl on the line, (laughs) the hell are you doing not giving it to your best back? And then, on top of that, running it directly at one of the greatest defensive players in league history. Of course, 99 took it upon himself to then finish the game right after that. Fourth and one, shotgun snap low, picks it up, left tackle block. Here comes Donald, and he spins Burrow around, who then tried to throw it away. The Rams celebrating on the near side. On downs, it goes to L.A. Only one timeout for the Bengals, and that may do it. That may do it. And the defense stands tough for L.A. I mean, this dude, 99, put that team on his back in the fourth quarter and with the game on the line, just like he did in the NFC Championship game, just like he always does. The Rams have plenty of stars. Lots of stars, but Aaron Donald is the star. In the words of Sean McVay, quote, he is the effing man. He is the effing man. It's a great quote. He is the effing man. He is the effing man. And as long as we're talking about stars, you got to give it up. You have to give respect to Matthew Stafford. You know, the guy that everybody doubts, the guy that everybody loves to question. What are the questions now? Where are your doubts now? Like, how different, this is amazing to me, how different would Matthew Stafford's life and legacy be this morning if he did not ask for a trade out of Detroit? How different would it all be if he had just stayed with the Lions? And would anybody have blamed him if he had just stayed with the Lions? If he had just remained in the place where he was drafted, accepted his fate, and then played out his entire career there? Just think about what that decision and this year has done for this guy. What it's done for his life, his legacy. He didn't just want to go to a new team. He wanted to go to a Super Bowl contender. He wanted to play in games that mattered. He wanted that pressure. He wanted what every single great athlete in the history of the world wants. They want to know how they would do on the big stage. And he wanted to answer the question. Are the Lions not winning because of Stafford or is Stafford not winning because of the Lions? You got your answer last night. You got it on that epic 15-play, 79-yard drive where he hit the Rams offense with the paddles because, let's be honest, for most of the second half, that Rams offense was brutal to watch. Without Odell, without Tower Higby, they had nothing 
They kept trying to establish the run and got nothing. They couldn't complete a pass. Stafford's targets were expectant father Van Jefferson, a third-string tight end, a seventh-round rookie, and a running back who just came off injured reserve who could not get anything going. And then on top of that, they couldn't find Cooper Cup either. I mean, it was painful to watch. The Rams went from looking like they were going to blow the Bengals out early to looking like they might get blown themselves out after that disastrous start to the second half. And then what would that look like? You could just see the stories that were being written already about Sean McVay, and they were not going to be pretty. That he got too cute with that Philly special. That he got too desperate. That he resorted to gimmicks. That you trade for Matthew Stafford to be a quarterback, not a receiver. 0-2 in Super Bowls. Big game choke artist. Thinking too much about retirement instead of winning that game and actually floating that story out there himself before the game. You could see all the stories being written about McVay and also about Stafford. That he was what his critics said that he was. Not a, or just a stack guy, but not a guy who can win a big game. Never mind that he ended Tom Brady's career, allegedly, probably not, but beat him on the road with that bomb to cup. Never mind that he found a way back into the 49ers game and got his team to the Super Bowl. Lose that game, and this guy is getting killed this morning. All of the credit and all of the goodwill that Stafford had banked in the past 12 months would be gone, and then he would be back to the guy who just can't win the big game. And then before you come in here and tell me that that last drive was all about Cup, just don't do that either. Of course, Cup's a stud. But that take tells me you did not see that no-look pass from Stafford to Cup on second and seven with over three minutes to go. Do yourself a favor. Get the the behind-the-quarterback view of that pass and then tell me that it was all about the receiver. The throw was brass and it was perfect. Couldn't win the big game. He just won the big game. And as I talked about with Will Brinson when he came on last week, we did discuss this prior to the game. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Stafford's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, that's not happening if he stays in Detroit. In Detroit, he's the Hall of Very Good. In L.A., he's in the Hall of Fame. Because that's what happens in L.A. You come here to be somebody. You come here to be a champion. And as I said multiple times on the NFL Today on CBS this season, that's how we do it in Hollywood. Give him credit. You know what that is. That's Shopify's new sales sound. It pumps me up. Because that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Feels great to close the sale, doesn't it? Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Listen, scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Believe me, This podcast started out selling office chairs. Today, we're selling business solutions, technology, and more. And we are not stopping there because success is a million milestones on a forever evolving path, right? Shopify 
powers over millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. I'm telling you, it's absolutely amazing. Go to shopify.com slash Rome, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Try it. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Rome right now. Again, shopify.com slash R-O-M-E. We go way back. He is Jim Trotter. Jim, good morning. How are you? What's going on, Romy? How you feeling, dude? Man, I feel great. So, fun night, great game, and now after a week on the road, get to head home. So, I'm feeling good. I hear that. Jim Trotter, my guest. All right, Jim, you've got a piece up on NFL.com right now about Aaron Donald. You have covered this league a long, long time. You are a Hall of Fame voter. Is Aaron Donald officially the baddest man in all football? (laughs) Without question, man. You know, one of the great things about covering this game and and being around so long, you see – really special players and he's one of them and one of the great things is that when you can give someone their flowers you know while they're still present and um when i talked to aaron after the game i just i felt compelled to tell him you know when you retire i can't wait for those five years to be up you know to be in that room to to just stamp your vote in the canton because he's just he's truly one of the one of the greatest ever um to do it so yeah he's he's i call him the best football player um, on the planet, regardless of position. And after last night, I think it's hard to kind of argue with that. No doubt. Jim Trotter joining us. You know, I had Carson Palmer on the show last week, Jim, and he said that when he was with the Cardinals, his offensive lineman came back to the huddle when they were facing Aaron Donald and said, block him. We can't even <laughs> see him. So, like, how do you explain that level of dominance on the final plays of the Super Bowl and the fact that he did it two weeks ago at the end of the NFC Championship game as well? Yeah, that's the thing. It, it was almost a carbon copy of what happened in the NFC Championship game in terms of him bursting free, grabbing the quarterback, spinning him, and then this, you know, this 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 wanton pass just kind of fluttering up. One results in interception, the other one falls to the ground. The end of the game. I think with Aaron, it's just it, it's a combination of so many things. I mean, obviously it's about God-given ability, but it's also about work ethic. It's about determination, and the word that he used last night. Um, multiple times was about relentlessness and the thing that stood out to me like it's interesting before every game his wife will text him messages and she told me she wouldn't go into depth in terms of what um, the specific of the message was this time but there were three things basically in it one was that I love you one was that I'm proud of you and the last one was that you are built for this moment and what we saw at the end of that game on third and one and fourth and one is that Aaron Donald without question as if we didn't know is built for that moment No doubt. Jim Trotter joining us. No doubt about that. And come to find out, we knew that about him already, but so many other guys were as well. Jim, one more thought about Aaron Donald. You asked him about possibly retiring, not once, not twice, but three times after the game. How did he respond, and what's your sense as to how he's feeling at this point? Could you see him walking away now? Yeah, it was funny that, you know, the first time he he looked at me and smiled and then act like, you know, he didn't hear me and turned and walked away. And then the second time, when I repeated it, he smiled at me again, and, and it was as if he wanted to say something, and then he stopped and took a selfie with, with Anthony Anderson and Cedric the Entertainer, and then 
finally on the third time, he looked at me and smiled and said, you know, I'm living in the moment right now. So um, could I see him stepping away? You know what, Romy, I could only from this standpoint that, you know, guys have made, they make so much more money now. And, and obviously Aaron has done well for themselves that when you have accomplished everything that you want to accomplish or, or feel you need to accomplish, uh, why not? You know, if you want to spend time with your family and that sort of thing. And one of the things that stuck out to me last time, my favorite photo was seeing Aaron sitting in this, this cordoned off area in the confetti with his wife and his kids just playing before he ever did any media obligations or anything else. He took time to be with them, which shows how much they mean to him. And the other thing is, you know, there's nothing to say if he felt like it, he couldn't take a year off and then come back after that. Now, when I asked Les Snead about it, the Rams GM after the game, he said, I'm not buying it. He said, he's too young. He'll get bored. So he said, it'll take a day or two and, and, and then we'll see what happens. So I, I, I don't think he's going to walk away. But it would not shock me if he did. We're talking to Jim Trotter. You know, Jim, talking to Sean Payton last week, you know, to hear him say why he's stepping away right now, it makes sense. Like, when you see what he's given to the game and how he might want some time to kind of reassess things, that made sense. But then all of a sudden, Sean McVay is saying things similar to that, and he was making those points earlier in the week. Where do you come out on that? Could you see him retiring sooner rather than later? I'm just going to say to you, I had someone who – I really respect and is really knowledgeable who said to me, it's real. So um, all I said to Sean last night is after the game is when we were talking one-on-one, I said, I'll see you next season. And he just gave me a smile. So I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know that Sean knows specifically what he's going to do. But again, Romy, nothing would surprise me. Um, Look, we all know they're paying broadcasters a lot of money right now. And there's a lot less stress, you know, in that broadcast booth than there is on that sideline. And so if Sean McVay decides that's the route he wants to go and he could make potentially double the money that he would make as a coach with half the stress or even less than that, again, wouldn't shock me at all if he walked away. At all. At all. I could see that happening for sure. Jim Trotter, my guest. Jim, what about Matthew Stafford? What does that game represent for him? Everything. I mean, this was – the narrative when he was in Detroit, you know, he couldn't win the big game. He had never won a playoff game, yada, yada, yada. And even coming into these playoffs, and I'm I'm guilty of this as well, we were consistently asked, who's the one quarterback that you trust the least? And I said it would have to be Matthew Stafford based on the fact that in the games that the Rams lost, he had thrown multiple picks and didn't look quite right um, when the pressure was on. But in these playoffs, when plays needed to be made and drives needed to be made, he was there and he showed great patience on that last scoring drive last night without Odell Beckham Jr., without Higby, you know, um, knowing that Cooper Cup was his guy. Um, he was very patient. Um, he made the throws that had to be made and took them down and, and got the winning score. So for me, it was it was everything for him. Talking to Jim Trotter. Now, Jim, you and I have talked for years about the head coach hiring process. You asked the commissioner about the idea that diversity, equity, and inclusion are core principles for the league. You asked him about that. What did you make of his response? That I got exactly what I expected, to be frank, that he wasn't going to answer the question, which is why I tried to be as specific as I could. Look, part of my point was, as he has said, you know, these are uh, the owners have the final say in who the head coaches are and the general managers and club presidents. The league doesn't do that hiring. But my point to him was, 
Well, that's fine, but let, now let's look at the things that you do control. You do control the hiring at the league office, and of your top 11 executives, there are only two people of color, and within our media group, where you have authority over that, we don't have one black person in, in the senior at the senior level in the newsroom um, in a league where your player population is 70-plus percent black. So, you know, before we start throwing out stones at the owners about what they are or are not doing, then sometimes you got to look in the mirror and say, is my house in order? And the reality is, um, and these are just facts, that his house is not in order as it relates to this issue under things that he can control. All right, so there's that. And then what about the owners, Jim? For instance, do you have any, any – okay, together then, jointly, do you have confidence that the league and the 32 owners can and will come up with a solution to this? Do they have an actual interest and commitment to coming up with a solution for this? Let me say this to you, Romy. It wasn't lost on me that the only two black hires among the head coaches this year came the week after Brian Flores filed his lawsuit, Okay. So um, is that a coincidence? I tend to think not. Look, the history of this league shows us that there are only two ways that substantive change ever occurs in the NFL. And one is either through the threat of litigation or actual litigation. And the other one is through the threat of sponsors pulling out, as we saw with the Washington football team. At that point, we had Dan Snyder, who had told us, on the record, he will never change the team's name, you know, that it was going to remain that. And the minute he got into trouble and the sponsors started, um, threatened to pull out over these sexual harassment allegations and whatnot. What happened? We had a change in team name. We had the first black club president in the 100-plus year history of the league hired, and we had a, um, a woman who was appointed to one of the highest positions within any franchise. So um, those are the only two ways that I know that substantive change ever happens in the NFL. And from that standpoint, I think Brian Flores' lawsuit depending on where it goes from here, could have an impact on what happens going forward. We're talking to Jim Trotter. Jim, one last thought on the issue. Do owners understand how to hire head coaches and what actually makes a good NFL head coach? No. No, they don't. I mean, Tony Dungy uh, said to me a few years ago, that, and, and I thought he was being facetious at the time, but he wasn't. And he said the league needs to have a course for the owners on how to hire head coaches. And when we look at, at, at what's happening, look, on average, we have seven head coaching changes per year, Romy, since 2000. Seven a year. That's nearly a quarter of your league changing head coaches every year. That alone should tell you that your business model is flawed. And as one GM said to me, look, these owners aren't brought up in the NFL culture of what makes and what doesn't make a good coach. One said to me, it's like, it's like if an owner has a software company and he says to me, I want you to hire our, our chief engineer, and and I don't know anything about software or engineering or anything else. How am I going to hire the most qualified or capable person? It's ridiculous. And so from that standpoint, what we have now with the owners is they don't know what constitutes a good head coach. And so what they do is they try and win the press conference, and they try and get cover by saying, well, this is the hot name, so if I get the hot name, no one can blame me. And then two years later, we start the process all over again. NFL media, he is a Hall of Fame voter. He is an author of the book, Junior Seau, The Life and Death of a Football Icon. He is an adjunct professor at San Diego State and, again, a very good friend of the program. He is Jim Trotter. Jim, I know it's been a long year. It always is. A great year, but a long year. So I appreciate you making time for us the morning after the fact. Great to have you on, Jim. Thanks for that. And tremendous insight as always. 
Romy, I appreciate you, man. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef very seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Who wants dried Tough beef in a bag. Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. For those of you who like to take things up a notch, next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? All right, so why don't we go back to this whole thing about how the fix was in, it was rigged, the league wanted the Rams to win. Let me tell you something. Uninspired, that's the uh, the third you. Unfunny, unoriginal, and uninspired. Let me tell you something. When you come in here and you say it was rigged and the league wanted the Rams to win, only from one standpoint. After T. Higgins nearly ripped Ramsey's head off his shoulders. That would have been the only reason that the league wanted the Rams to win. So that wasn't a talking point. But then again, come to find out, they were pretty much garbage both ways. The officials. Garbage. Bengal fans. I'm not here to pile on. I'm not an L.A. Rams fan. And I'm not an L.A. native here to pile on. I'm not. I feel for you. I do. I really, really do. I don't play favorites, but I love the Bengal fans. They've been through a hell of a lot in the past few decades. And I'm walking around that stadium, and I felt the love, man. They wanted it badly. They are amazing fans. And I feel for you because you were this close. You had it. You had it. It was this close, but then the Rams ripped it from you. The officials did not steal it from you. The Rams ripped it from you. Your crew was dominating the second half. Even as Joe Burrow was getting the crap beat out of him again, because he always does, because of the guys in front of him, he did what he always does. He keeps getting up. He doesn't blink. He doesn't flinch. I do feel for you. You have been through so much over the past 30 years, and you were this close to capping off one of the all-time great turnarounds, one of the all-time great Super Bowl runs. You were this close to jumping into pools of skyline chili. This close. And then the Rams ripped it from you. And yes, I said that. The Rams ripped it from you. It was not the refs. Don't come in here and say that it was the refs. Don't talk to me about that game being rigged or the fix being in or any of that. Not when T. Higgins nearly decapitated Jalen Ramsey on the first play of the second half. There's the snap, the spin, drops back, moves up, pocket crumbles, launches a long line drive pass down the near side, caught 30, the defense. Defender fell down, Higgins down the sideline, 20, 10, 5, touchdown! Spectacular start for the Bengals, who have taken the lead for the first time. 75 yards, the defender fell, and Higgins was wide open. Touchdown, Cincinnati! Westwood won. 
Higgins did not just grab Ramsey's face mask. He damn near ripped his head right off his shoulders. And there was no flag. There could have been a dozen flags on that play, but there wasn't even one. Nikel, Nikel Roby Coleman cannot believe there was no flag on that play. I mean, as long as you're doing that, why not just horse collar the guy while you're at it? So that was a free touchdown, Bagels fan. You know it was. You can have that one on the house. The refs spotted you a TD. So no, I don't want to hear from you about how badly the refs jammed you. Then that the fix was in and the league wanted the Rams to win. And yes, I know the refs decided to impose their will on that game in the final drive. But they were garbage all game and they were garbage all season and they've been garbage for years you're not like being singled out you were not targeted this is a massive problem in the league and it's even worse when it shows up on the big stage and you knew it would right but the refs were not the ones launching those flags in the fourth quarter to make sure the rams won they were doing it because they're the refs do i need to repeat that They were not throwing all those flags because they wanted the Rams to win. They were throwing all those flags because they're refs. Do you think the refs were trying to rig that game for the Rams? Is that what you're going with? You think the refs were trying to make sure the Rams won the Super Bowl? Because I guarantee that was not the case. Look, I know that game was played in L.A., but they were not being influenced by, quote, the hometown crowd. Because I'm not even sure that was a home game. In fact, a lot of their games don't feel like home games. The refs definitely were not playing to the majority of the fans or the loudest fans. That's not what that was about. And then if you're going to come in here and try and say, yeah, well, it's better for the league if the Rams win. Why? Why would that be better for the league? Believe me, the league would not mind a small market like Cincinnati winning because then parity wins. And by the way, you've got a supernova in Joe Burrow. So why would the league, quote, want the Rams to win? So let's be very clear about this, too. The refs were not the ones. All right, Bengals fan, you need to hear this. And you already know this. I know you know this. You're knowledgeable fans. The refs were not the ones who called for that inside handoff to Samaje Pirine on third and one with the game on the line. The refs did not dial that play up. That was your coach, Zach Taylor. The refs were not the ones who decided to run the ball right at one of the greatest defensive players in the history of the sport. The refs did not do that. Your coach did. And I still have no idea what the hell he was thinking in doing that. The hell was he even thinking in making that play call? Come on, Bengals fan. You know that. You know that. You're going to give it to a guy for his fourth carry of the playoffs. Yeah, I know. I know. He's got a reputation as a short yardage back. However... He had four short yardage carries all season, and he only got two first downs. Joe Mixon was gashing the Rams, but he's not even on the field for that play. How does Mixon not get the ball in that situation? But you want to blame the refs. If their best beats your best, you can live with that. But running that other guy right at their best guy is not your best. They had Mixon, but somehow they thought this was a better option. Need the first down. It's a long one on the ground. Smaje Pirine didn't get there. Aaron Donald, rather important tackle with Greg Gaines. Wow. 
Oh, boy. Right. Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know Taylor said afterwards that he was looking to steal a first down, but that's not the time to steal anything, right? Or gimmick your way to anything, right? Especially not behind that matador line. You're not stealing a Super Bowl. You got to win it. Line up best on best and try to win it. And don't get cute there. How hard were the Rams laughing when they saw P. Ryan line up? When they saw that he was the guy getting the ball and not even Burrow or Mixon? I guarantee you if you ask the Rams who they would rather try to stop in a pressure situation, they're going to take P. Ryan every single time. So Bengal fans, listen, I feel badly for you. You were this close. And I'm not in any way rooting against you. It would have been an amazing story, and I would have been hyped to come in here and hype you up and bang telephone calls all three hours. Because I know I'm not going to get phone calls from Ram fan for three hours, but I know I would have from Bengals fans. So don't come in here like I'm Rambo Rome. And don't come in here and say the refs lost you that game or that the game was fixed or that it was rigged. Again, as bad as they were, and they were, They always are. They're refs. But as bad as they were, they weren't the ones who were getting the crap beat out of Joe Burrow. That was the Rams' defensive front. And by proxy, that was the Bengals' offensive line. Now, they played pretty well for huge chunks of the game. But then, as always, they went full matador when it mattered most. The guy was sacked six times on his final 21 dropbacks. He went from Joe Burr to Joe Tackling Dummy. The Rams were having a party in the backfield every single time he dropped back to pass. That was a human sacrifice in football form. That was like something from Jackass Forever. I'm Joe Burrow, and I'm facing Aaron Donald without any protection. So, Bengal fan, from me to you, hell of a run. Hell of a run. Hell of a run. I loved every second of it. Bad news is, you just lost the Super Bowl in heartbreaking fashion, but you cannot blame the the refs. Hell of a run. One for the ages. But the refs are not the reason that you did not win. Your offensive line is. And the play calling. You got to do better than that. Do not come in here and tell me that game was rigged or fixed and the referees ripped it from you. Scarrets, come on, Rome. You do have a favorite team, the Gauchos. I will give you that one, though. You can root for them because you have good reason. All right, I stand corrected. You're right. The Gauchos, I do root for. My college team, I do root for. SA Sports Honk. Sure, Rambo Jim. The NFL wanted the Rams to win and made damn sure it happened. Sincerely, the cold envelope. Now, I, look. I love a good conspiracy theory, and that's a great conspiracy theory. But the Rams or the refs wanting the Rams to win last night is not a good conspiracy theory. The cold envelope is an awesome conspiracy theory. And by the way, I tend to believe that. I do tend to believe that. I'm not saying I can confirm it. I tend to believe it. But not all these conspiracy theories. The best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a day. The same is true when it comes to your long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1, the finance super app. 
It's commission-free, and it makes growing your money easier so you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then, automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. No huddle-ups necessary. Visit m1finance.com sports. That's M with the number one. Sign up and see why money Investopedia and Yahoo Finance are proud super fans of M1. That's M, the number one dot com slash sports. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance LLC, member FINRA SIPC. He is Michael Lombardi. Michael, good to have you back. How are you? Good, good to be here, Jim. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to have me. you. Appreciate you, Michael, as always. Now, you've won three Super Bowls, so I've got to ask you, what's it like after the confetti falls and then you wake up the next morning knowing that you are a Super Bowl champion? Well, you know, I mean, one of them was uh, an easier game when we beat the Miami Dolphins, uh, and the, the other two were gut-wrenching and your emotions are, you know, when Malcolm Butler makes the play or you come back from behind 28-3, to I think you're – you're feeling like uh, you, you've you've been through battle, which you ultimately have, and you know you have very little time to celebrate because the NFL is a constantly moving machine that uh, goes on to the next phase, and you can't really be able to uh, to slow it down. So, as much as you want to spend time in relishing in the moment got to move on to the next job. We're talking to Michael Lombardi. That makes sense to me. What about this? The Rams obviously go all in. They win the Super Bowl, and they did it with a number of their big-name players making huge plays in the final two minutes. I mean, Michael, it might not have been the prettiest game, but what are your thoughts when you see a team take those big swings, go all in, and then actually execute and win it all? Well, you, you think, look, they did it. I mean, you got to give them all the credit. Even though they didn't play their best game, I thought offensively, particularly in their play calling and their design, attacking the Bengals, they, they found a way to be resourceful and come up with the lead 23-20 to 20 in that game. And then their defense made their stand that they had to make. So all hats are off, and I think that's the reward. I mean, when you go all in, when you copy the George Allen mandate of the future is now, the future has to pay off. It didn't pay off for George Allen. He won 72% of his games, got into the Hall of Fame, but he never really was able to secure the future with a with a title. And the Rams were, and I think you got to give all the credit to their organization, Les Snead, Kevin Demoff, and, of course, Sean McVay, who's able to lead them. We're talking to Michael Lombardi. Michael, what about Sean McVay? I mean, he's a Super Bowl-winning coach. He's a great leader. What were you, and you touched on this, but what were your impressions of the game plan that he had? I think he got really fortunate, Jim. I think his game management has never been very good. I mean, the call, you know, the interception at the end of the half is really a, a bad play. They should have let the clock run down. Sean has never been able to, almost like Andy Reid, been able to orchestrate play calling into time management and understanding sometimes who the opponent is and it not necessarily is the team in the other uniform. Let's just take, for example, first and goal at the eight. With, uh, you know, he let the two-minute warning go down. They did that. That was smart. Now he's got first and goal at the eight. That play call there has to be a possession pass or a run, a direct run, to get the clock moving, to find out if Zach Taylor wants to call timeout or how he wants to handle it. Because at that point in the game, Jim, you have two opponents, the team that you're playing and the clock, okay? And you've got to work both of them. You say, well, you've got to score whenever you can score. Agreed. You've got to score whenever you can score. But you've got to try to move the clock. 
he throws an incomplete pass. On second and eight, they get away with a blatant, and I want to underscore the word here, blatant. I think this is one of the biggest unknown stories. It was never covered by the NBC crew, which is a tragedy to most of the fans in America, but there was a blatant false start, a blatant false start on both sides. The center was late snapping the football, and the left tackle jumped, the right tackle jumped. They were in the backfield before the ball was snapped, and it was missed, and then the cup play happens, and they get bailed out. So they not only do they take a beneficiary of getting that call, not getting that call against them, they get a, a bad call for, for in their favor. So he was fortunate enough, and then he sneaks the ball on first down to get the clock running. Taylor calls timeout, and then he throws it on second down to score when maybe he should have run the ball there to see if he could have got the clock moving. So I, I, I don't think it was Sean's best game plan. I really don't. I think that they were very uncomfortable when they lost Beckham. They couldn't find their rhythm. And when you take away the running game like Belichick did in 18 – and like like the Bengals did in, in 22, Sean becomes neutralized and he's not as effective as a play caller. Michael Lombardi is joining us. Well, they might not have been talking about that false start last night, but we're talking about it right now. In fact, Michael, why don't we talk about the entire officiating situation? You've got that false start, and then you've got the no call on the T. Higgins touchdown. And then what you just mentioned, I mean, the fact that we're even talking about this is a problem. How big of a problem overall is the officiating for the league? Well, I think the bigger issue here, Jim, is the fact that they went into the playoffs. Let's go back to the conference championship game. Sheffers was the, one of the referees. He's called the most penalties of anybody in the league. Vinovich was the other referee. He called the least amount of penalties. So you had diametrically different referees in the championship game. And in those games, they basically said, you guys play. We're only going to call what we have to call. And if you watch the second half of the Chief game against Buffalo, I mean, Buff, uh, I mean, if you watch the second half of the, uh, of the Bengal game against the Chiefs, I mean, the, Chief, the, the, the Bengals just mugged the Chiefs receivers and got away with it. Okay, fine. That's the way you want to call it. That's how it's going to be. In this game and in that particular call that I'm referencing, the blatant uh, false start, you've got to call things that are not debatable, that are not subjective. You know, whether, whether you miss the call on – on, on the Higgins interception, whether you missed it, whether you made the call on the, on the cup play, then we can argue that till the cows come home. And every Super Bowl has those calls. But when you miss a false start, when basically four of the officials, think about this now, Jim, four of the officials, both line judges, the umpire and the referee are looking for false starts. Okay. There's four, there's eight set of eyes on that. When you make the call on Chase that you missed on, on down the field that, that Chase scores a touchdown, there's really only one guy looking at that to make the call. Maybe the, may there's two, but the most. But when eight eyes miss it, then there's something wrong, and I think that's where the league really makes a mistake. They go into the game not wanting to be the, the impact the game. They want to kind of stay out of, the, out of the line of fire, and yet they still end up getting in the line of fire. Hmm talking to Michael Lombardi. So, Michael, really quickly about Sean McVay, if we can go back to that for a minute. How likely, in your, in your opinion, how likely is it that he leaves the sideline and goes into TV after that win? Well, I don't know how or when he might do it. Remember, Bill Parcells did this after he won the Super Bowl on the wide right, right? Bill Parcells stayed. Belichick became the head coach of the Browns in Cleveland in 1991. And I think Parcells in either May or June retired from football. So the, the effect of it does take some time. You know, it, did you, I mean, look like Sean, the emotions of Sean going through this game was difficult. I mean, his hand was shaking on the sideline. There was a lot of pressure on him. 
you know, I think ultimately what a good coach he is, but I do think he wants to spend more time, whether it's this year or next year. That's up to him. But I think eventually, if that Monday night booth is going to be open, I think he's going to grab it. Or something else, too. Michael Lombardi joining us. So, Michael, what about the Bengals? What did you make, for instance, of Zach Taylor's decision to go with Samaje Pirine with a run call instead of Joe Mixon on that third and one at the end? Well, I think it happened earlier in the game. You know, how do you do that earlier in the game? On the first third down, third and one, they give it to Pirine. You know, and, and just because Piran's their nickelback doesn't mean he's their short yardage back. To me, they made the mistake earlier. They never correct it later in the game. Second and one. I've said this all on my podcast. I've said it on my show on VEASAN. These playoff games, Jim, are always determined by who converts third and short. Whoever converts those usually wins the game. And the Bengals lost the game because they couldn't. You know, the second and one call, they throws it down the field. you got to get the first down. Part of the problem that I had in the game was when McVeigh was not managing the clock very well at the end, he didn't realize that McPherson was, could make a 58-yarder. Like it, That game should have gone to overtime. It should have gone to overtime because McPherson is so good at kicking the ball, especially indoors. So you've got a second and one. Get the first down right there. Sneak it, do whatever you want. Third and one, we don't even get the spot. I mean, I wasn't sure the spot was right on that play. We didn't even get a review on the spot. And then fourth down, he's got Chase wide open because Ramsey fell down. He had no time to throw it. I think it was three of the worst calls that Taylor made during the season, and it cost him. Michael Lombardi on point. Michael, I've heard you say it a number of times, both on your podcast and show, what you just said, that these games, the big games come down to a third and one. Let me ask you this. What wins those plays and those moments? Is it about the play call by the coach, or is it about the execution by the players? A little bit of both, but I think at that point, what you said to start this broadcast about the Rams, that they put their best players in position to help them win. If you're going to go down, if I'm the Bengals and I'm Zach Taylor, I'm going down with Chase Burrow, Mixon, and then I'm going with Boyd and Higgins. I mean, those are are the guys that are getting the ball. Like, to me, before they started that drive, if I were the head coach of the Bengals, I would have called the offensive up together and I said, fellas, here's what we're going to do. The next eight plays – these are the guys who you guys got to make plays. Boyd, Higgins, Chase, you've got to make plays. Burrow, Mixon. Like, I'm not taking Mixon off the field. Like, there's no way I'm doing that. The, the, your best players have to make plays when it matters most. This isn't a situation that you can cheat on. It's the Super Bowl. We're close to getting this game in overtime. If we get 10 more yards, this kid's going to make it. And to me, I think they just went right back to the old coaching. Well, you know, this is our nickel package and P-Rod's in the game. No, it's about players and plays. Michael Lombardi is joining me once again. Michael, you've made the point, but I want you to reiterate here if you would. If you're Buffalo or you're Kansas City or you're both, what do you think they were thinking as they watched that game last night? I think it's one of the Super Bowls where the, the, best, the team that gets the Lombardi trophy may not be the best team in the league. I think that's just the way Buffalo has to feel about it. You know, Sean McDermott can say all he wants about, well, we didn't execute with 13 seconds. No, that was coaching malpractice at the highest level. You don't kick the ball inbounds. Pringle's the only returner back there, right? So if you kick the ball to Pringle, he's going to eat six seconds off the clock. They've got two plays. I've said this many times. Never look at a play clock and think how much time's left. Always look at a play clock to see how many plays are left. So if you're Buffalo, you're watching that game, you're, the be- you're, the better-, you're better than either one of those teams on the field last night. And Kansas City has no one to blame but themselves. I mean, you know, Burrow didn't play good in this game. We won't talk about it. Mahomes played horrible in the second half in the championship game. Nobody will talk about it because they're both great players. But sometimes great players don't play good. I thought Burrow wasn't very good last night. 
I think one of the reasons why they only scored 20 points, one of the reasons they only got five first downs with 25 minutes left to go in the game was because he didn't play as well. Now, he got hit a lot, and I understand it. I was going to say, Michael, he got pressure throughout, right? I mean, it was not just the seven sacks. It was also the pressure rate, and that's been the thing. How much of that is the guys, the turnstiles in front of him, or how much of that was on Joe Burrow last night? I think a lot of it was the turnstiles in front of him. They tried to manage it as best they could, but once Donald kind of upped his game, you know, Jim, i got to be honest, after the game I, I turned the TV off and kind of just went back on my business, but I, I thought Donald was the MVP of the game based on what he did in the second half. I know I, I ended up reading this morning that Cup won, but I thought Donald was a real force. I mean, particularly after the interception, when he sacked him on that play that they're trying to go in and score, and, and they made it 20-13. to 13. I think he was the play, and I think the pressure was just too great. Eventually, these offensive linemen for the Bengals, really, it's remarkable. They've been called one time for holding in three the last three games, but they couldn't block them, and it cost them the championship. Michael Lombardi is joining me for a few more moments. I agree with you. Michael, your son Mick is the new offensive coordinator with the Las Vegas Raiders. Is there any way for you to put into words what that feels like, not just that he's earned an opportunity like that, but that it's with the Raiders? You know, I, I can't. You know, as a father, you always want your sons to, to succeed, do better than you did, and clearly he's doing that. I mean, he makes his own mark. I was delighted that he's been given this opportunity. I, I'm proud that I want to stay in the background and, and really just, just enjoy the, the labor of the love that he has. I mean, he was a little kid, you know, that used to come over to the Raider facility, try to avoid Al Davis as all he could because he was scared to death of him and go in the locker room and look at Charles Woodson's locker and just, you know, visualize himself as a Raider. And now he has an opportunity to go back to a team that we spent 10 years with. His youthful, his youth growing up was spent in Oakland. So I'm just, my wife and I were extremely proud of him. And we are just thankful to be blessed by both our sons. Our other son is the assistant quarterback coach of the Panthers. So we're really blessed to enjoy this football life. I wish they would have gone into podiatry, but they went into football. So, Michael, that's great. I'm really curious. Like, I've got an older son who wants to be in our business, broadcasting, but not sports per se. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about how your kids approached it. Like, my son's like, hey, yo, Pops, I'm really proud of you, but I'm my own guy. I'm my own man, you know, until I can help, of course. But, but I'm really curious. Like, the kids went into the family business. How have they approached that? Are they constantly like, hey, Pops, let me pick your brain on this? Or are they like, hey, Dad, I got this. Let me do it my own way. Or are they just did totally different? No, I mean, I think that there's subtle ways. I've taught them a long time ago that I would never criticize them, that I was always coaching them. I think it's the biggest challenge you have in life when you're dealing with the, your kids is to make them understand everything you say is coaching, not criticism. So we always had that as a baseline. And I think more than anything is I wanted them to be in coaching. I never wanted them to be in personnel like I was because to me, personnel – you know, have you ever met a scout that ever made a mistake? Of course not. They are, everybody's picks all Hall of Famers. They never made a mistake. They can lie their way through anything. And, and there's no tape to back up what you say. Whereas in coaching, you have tape to back it up. Here's what I'm teaching. Here's what I believe in. And here's what my players are doing. So I encourage them to go into coaching if they wanted to get in this because I didn't want them to end up as my career as you having to lobby for whether you were good or not based on political connections. That's really interesting. All right, one last thought. You're a Philadelphia Sixers fan. You study and write about leadership, as we know. I'm curious, Michael, what were your impressions of how Daryl Morey handled the Ben Simmons situation and brought in James Harden? Where do you come out on that? Well, I think you got to give him a ton of credit, right? He changed the narrative. I mean, Jim, remember, when he when, after the Atlanta series, everybody said he wouldn't get anything for him. 
He changed the narrative. And I learned this from Al Davis, that the longer you're patient, the more willing you are to say no, the stronger you strengthen your position in negotiations. Saying no is a good thing, you know, and having the mental toughness to say no. And everybody wanted him to get rid of the guy. Everybody said he had no value. Go back and listen to everything that was said after the Atlanta series and all through the summer. The guy's value shrink, all the pundits, even, the, you know, everybody who's an NBA expert was saying he's got no value. And Maury stuck to his guns and hung in there. Now, do I think he paid too much? Of course he did. Do I think Harden's contract's going to be ridiculous in three years? Of course it is. You know, is he taking a huge risk? Of course. But he knows the window for Embiid is very, very tight, and he needs to make that move. And he got rid of a player who would rather retreat than compete. And I think that was probably the best thing he could do. Mm. And, Michael, one last thought. How about our guy Muss? You see Muss with that busted-up wing in the <laughs> massive humanity after that huge win against number 1 Auburn. How about our guy? I got a shout-out to Muss. Wasn't that amazing? It, you know, there's nobody I root harder for. I mean, there, I love him to death. I mean, he's the great, one of the greatest coaches I've been around, and I've been around some really great coaches. And Eric Musselman is one of the finest coaches I've been around. And what makes him so good, Jim, is he's so curious. I mean, he's constantly trying to become a better coach every single day. You know, he's constantly working at his craft. And I think that pays dividends. And the kids gravitate to him. And the way he behaves and his enthusiasm, it's contagious. And I hope he can keep going. Listen, he's one of my best friends. He and I are the same age, Michael. And I've known him since we were both 23. I know you've got a respect and affinity for him. But I've never heard you say he's one of the best coaches you've ever been around. That's really high praise. And I know you mean that. I love hearing that from you. Uh, I do. I mean, look, he, the thing that makes separates him is because he understands, Jim, this is hard. This is something Zach Taylor didn't understand. Must understands players and plays. Al Davis said this to me years ago. If you want to be a great coach, you've got to know players and you've got to know plays. You've got to combine the two together. And Must does that as well as anybody. And every team's different. His team will be better at the end of March than it is right now. I think that also is fascinating. You have to understand players and plays, right? Because some understand one or the other, but not both. That's right. And sometimes and when you just like Zach Taylor, he wants to run, you know, he's got a nickel team that he puts out there and Perrine's part of the nickel team when it's the player. I mean, I'm telling you, Zach Taylor wouldn't have got off the field if Al Davis was alive. If he was given the ball to Perrine and not to Mixon, it would have been a hell of a pay. Because, look, we're going to go down with our best players. We, you know, who do we want? I mean, you don't think that if the Rams could have picked one guy to run a short yardage play, they would have picked Perrine. Not that he's a bad player, but he's a nickel player. You know, I said the same thing, Michael. They, uh, I mean, you, when you say it, you have more authority, but I said the same thing. When they saw him get the ball, they were laughing. They loved it. That's exactly what they wanted. He is a three-time Super Bowl winner. He is co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast. He is co-creator of The Daily Coach. He is Michael Lombardi and an author to boot. Michael, great, great segment. Appreciate you very much. Great to have you back. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you anytime. This podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. I love this product. I use it. Now, let me ask you this. Does this sound familiar? You've got the one device that allows you to catch the game live, another one that lets you stream your favorite programs, you watch sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbors, best friends, log in for all the good stuff. Listen, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all of that entertainment that you love without all that hassle. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the best part, there is no annual contract. 
get rid of the clutter and the confusion. Get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. One of the other highlights, my dude, I'm running out of time. Alvy, roll what you got. Live from Los Angeles, site of Super Bowl 56. Hey now, it's cracking. Welcome to the program. My name is Jim Rome, and that is, in fact, Drew. I think that I've probably done this now 30 times, but this is the very first time I've ever driven to Radio Row. So this is something very unique and very different. Yeah! Elijah Mitchell is my guest. Man, one running back that I look up to, Alvin Kamara, yeah. just the way he well, do. He had a bad weekend, unfortunately. Man, yeah, yeah. The playmaker is here. How can you lose this game in your own home stadium? Every time you ride by this stadium, you will think about that game that got away. Lincoln Riley. I think there's a sense of urgency that we can't waste one second. Does that mean that you can't surf? <laughs> I will definitely uh, be on a surfboard. It's not officially Radio Row until Romo gets here. Okay, I'm going on Rome, and I know he's going to ask me if I worked out. I did take a look at what's in the green room. Wait a minute, is he getting soft on me now? <laughs> First of all, Alvin Deloro, you have never How been to Radio Row. Like, I'm so jacked. There's just so much stuff going on. Truth is, dude, there's nothing going on. You always say you have to uh, be comfortable being uncomfortable. There you go. Ding. When I hear my voice, it kind of annoys me. I would run me so fast. Carson Palmer. That pass rush, I saw it when I was in Arizona in that division. I saw Aaron Donald twice a year. And the offensive line saying, man, I, we can't even see him, let alone block him. Debo Samuel joining me. Literally everybody in that locker room loves Garoppolo. After he hurt his thumb, he couldn't grip the ball the way he wanted to grip it. Minus the shoulder injury, he just how fearless is to me. Tomorrow's mine. Joining me for a few more moments. I would rather two Nigerians have belts than huh. one Nigerian with two That's belts. That's interesting. I've always wondered about guys that felt strongly about each other. If Dana is willing to sit us down and say $100 million, at that point, me and Israel have to talk. He is Kurt Warner. Be grateful for those along the way. And so it has been. Way back when, when I came from nowhere and you put me on very, very early in the process. I just appreciate it. Marlon Humphrey is my guest. Waffles and pancakes for breakfast. Is it a meal or is it just a syrup delivery? system. It is basically just a load of sugar. If I could have lunch, lunch, dinner, or dinner, lunch, dinner. Austin Eckler. Man. What's it been like that for you? Have you moved past it or are you still are you still bothered by it? I'm bothered by the entire season just because we have we had the pieces. They're all there. Josh Allen, you live there now. Laguna Niguel, yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. We gotta go to Josh Javier's. Allen. Okay, yeah. If, is that not the best place? I don't know Wait. about the best place, but it's up there. Respectfully, dude, you'd be wrong. <laughs> Micah Parsons. This is the spicy challenge, not the sissy challenge. Wait, I, I need to see the gift card. Dude, are you done with that? Just dump that whole bottle on that. Can we get a gift card on the table? I need to see the money on the table. $20 right now. That ain't, no, that ain't enough, dude. <laughs> that ain't enough. How about you put that watch on the table? <laughs> C.D. Lamb is my guest. Why are they singling you out? I don't know. I think, I don't know. I don't know. You, really you know. know, you just don't really want to tell me. I don't want to say which it. Which I respect. <laughs> Taunting comes with excitement. The refs get it kind of, you know, confused with excitement. Justin Jefferson is my guest. I honestly hate the, the taunting. So do I. I, I hate People it. People want to see that feistness, that, that, little, that little attitude. Hell yes, we do, dude. <laughs> Troy Aikman is my guest. Put me up at the Four Seasons in Montecito. The Biltmore. The Biltmore. And I got out of Best the car. Best ever, by the way, dude. The sun was setting. Yes. I'd never been to Santa Barbara, and I said, this is Santa Barbara, and I've been hooked ever since. Aaron Jones. I want to make sure that we talked about your dad. Like, I hope, uh, I hope, no, I, 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 I didn't want to put you in a bad spot. Thank you for allowing me to let his legacy live on. Say hey to moms. Will do. Let's try and do it. Head, are you there? I'm here, Jim. What's going on? What does your system say? Oh, sorry, Head. Now you're done. Now I'm done. <laughs>
Of course, I'm talking about Mac Jones. No party that wants to say, hey, yo, how you like me now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have it on the inside, but I don't like to talk about it or anything. I just keep to myself. Sean Payton. The office is set up. It's perfect. I cleaned it. It's a newer office. It's got a okay. bathroom in it. And so just be careful that first time that you turn that water pressure on. Taylor Heineke is my guest. Do you feel like you've done enough, though, to claim that starting job going forward? I'm preparing for another quarterback battle, and it's it's nothing new in my career. It's been like that since high school. You know, I welcome it. It makes me better. Derek Henry. How demoralizing is it? I just feel bad because when they play highlights, it's, it's do you, constantly Do you feel highlights. bad? I feel bad for the dudes. I'm just like, dang, Do you? Bro. Or does it feel awesome? I mean, it feels awesome in the time. I'm just like, dang, they keep playing it. And I know they probably see it be like, why do they keep playing this? That's it from the row. Good night. Seriously, no wonder I had so much fun. What a great week that was. Some of those moments... Michael Parsons telling me that it's the spicy challenge, not the sissy challenge. (laughs) And Alvy telling me, dude, like, there's so much going on here. And I had to correct him and say, Alvy, actually, there's nothing going on here.